You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Friends, the global Methodist movement is beginning to catch fire like I haven't seen it in my 25 years of ministry. This is a global gospel, and as only he can do, what has seemed like it is breaking apart is actually building a new connection that is more global and more missional than we might have asked or imagined. So sometimes it isn't what it seems, and that's a good thing. And that puts us right in the middle of Jonah. (laughs) So turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. If you need help finding it, just find the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and flip back eight books. Did you know that the whole book of Jonah is read every year during the Jewish High Holy Day called the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur is a time to reflect on the year behind and pray for the year ahead, to repent for all you've done intentionally and unintentionally, and ask for blessing over the year to come. And since the second century, in the middle of of Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, at the time of day in the afternoon when they think that the prayers, of, uh, the prayers of the people are most likely to be heard by God, they read the whole book of Jonah. And, and, and they, they read it. And it's because it's a book of repentance and forgiveness. And it's not Jonah they're interested in. No, it's the sailors who threw him overboard and then said they're sorry for that. And for the Ninevites, the pagans who, who, and, the, and the outsiders who, 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 who repented when God gave them that prophetic word, they are the ones who see the hand of God, who realize that things are not what they seem, and who repent of their sins, while Jonah, who represents the religious people, I need an amen from the religious people or the recovering religious people in the room, Well, Jonah keeps a hard heart toward the world because he has opinions and feelings he does not want to give up. So the Jews read this story because Jonah is a warning for us, a challenge to figure out where we really fit inside the grace of God. Jonah, (laughs) called by God to walk into the territory of his enemy to preach against it. Its wickedness had come up against God. But God didn't want to annihilate Nineveh. No, he wanted to save it. The lesson here is this. People are not the problem. Tell your neighbor right now. People are not the problem. Yeah. This is, this is a good thing to say to each other as we verge on Thanksgiving week when you're about to go be with family. People, people are not the problem. People are the prize. Tell your neighbor, people are the prize. You are the prize. But none of that sounded like a good idea to Jonah. So he ran. And we know this story now if you've been around. Jonah tossed over the edge of a boat by sailors who immediately repented of that sin and anything else they'd done to offend God. And then Jonah is swallowed by a fish out there in the ocean. So Jonah, excuse me, so God could get his attention. You are here, Jonah, because this is the last option I had left to get your attention. 
So there in the belly of that fish, he discovers he's not been swallowed by a fish at all. He's been swallowed by God. Someone reminded me last week of a teaching that Steve did years ago around John chapter 14, where Jesus says, before long, this is, this is Jesus talking, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The powerful line in this passage is verse 20. I want you to read this together. Go. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So Steve says that what Jesus is describing here is sort of like envelopes that hold other envelopes. So this, this is me. When I come to know Jesus... And I ask Jesus, you know, kind of the proverbial, ask Jesus to live in your heart. Jesus comes to live in me. So now, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. So now Jesus comes to live in me. But Jesus says it's kind of, it's kind of sense around. Not only does Jesus live in me, but now I live in Jesus who lives in me. And then he says, and then I, Jesus says, live in the Father. And so all of it is nestled inside the Father. Do you feel yourself way down in there? Swallowed by the Father. And while it can feel, I don't know, somehow powerless, Actually, there is no place on earth more protected, more powerful than this. Amen. Sometimes it isn't what it seems, and that's a good thing. And I don't know if Jonah's story is somehow a foretaste of this cocooning that Jesus describes in John chapter 14, but it sure seems as if God has a way of holding us in and helping us to see in here how, who we are and who God is, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, compassionate, and to help us to see the world like God sees it. So there in the belly of that fish, Jonah gets it, even if unwillingly, that his prejudices and his feelings, over which he is very protective, don't actually fit inside this cocoon. May not be God's design for him. And so he half-heartedly repents. He's sort of, you know, this. <laughs> I got to get my envelope out like that. He's sort of that. He walks through Nineveh muttering five Hebrew words that translate into eight English words, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then, even though he hardly breathes the words, surely hoping they will become true, the people of Nineveh hear them as the voice of God and willingly, humbly, 
eagerly repent. When God sees what they've done, he relents and doesn't do as he's, as he's threatened. And that brings us to chapter 4 and to a very irritated Jonah. So look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, God's mercy toward the, toward the Ninevites seemed very wrong, and he became angry. <laughs> Which is why I've been saying all the way through this series that Jonah's repentance is suspect. He repents, but it doesn't stick. Now he's right back to judging. Even God. He's so mad about God's mercy, he wants to die. That's some serious bitterness. So verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So, ah, I knew you were that. So just take my life. It's better for me to die than live. Jonah is mad. God, I know your character. It's why I didn't want to do this thing, because it would require me to bear your heart for people who have hurt my people. These people have hurt my people, and I didn't want to bear your heart to them. I don't want to be swallowed by your will. I don't want you to be in me and me to be in you. Maybe I thought I wanted that, but I don't want that, because I'm afraid if I get swallowed by you, I will lose myself. Which, of course, is the point. But Jonah doesn't see that as a good thing. So he says all that to God. And then he goes and he sits down outside the city to sulk. And while he's sitting there, a vine grows up and gives them some shade. And for the first time in the whole story of Jonah, the only time in the whole story of Jonah, he's happy. It's a strange thing to be so happy about that. It's petty, almost childish. Then God causes the vine to wither and and die, and Jonah's mood dies with it. Now he's the opposite of swallowed. He is exposed. It's like this plant becomes a symbol of all that's wrong in his life. He laments the plant, and he just says to God, kill me. If I get swallowed by you, God, I might lose myself. Exactly. Have you considered the possibility that there are parts of you that you've so protected that they are now idols? Sometimes things aren't what they seem. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes not so much. This is what God has been trying to do with this whole story. He's been trying to kill everything in Jonah that isn't fit for the kingdom. Not because God wants to make Jonah suffer, but because God wants to make Jonah whole. At the end of chapter 4, go all the way to the end, God says, Interesting, Jonah, you've been very concerned about this plant. Though you didn't tend it, and you didn't make it grow. The plant, friends, is grace. You've been very concerned about this, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died every night. And so should I, God, not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals. 
God so wants Jonah to get grace. If Jonah is attached to a plant he didn't grow or deserve out there in the desert, then can't God care for 120,000 souls who didn't deserve their redemption? That's grace. We don't deserve it. We don't get to define it. And if we want it for ourselves, we have to let others have it too. (laughs) That's the thing with grace. It is extremely personal, but it's not private. The grace that God has given to me belongs to you too. Grace is extremely personal, but it's not private. You should write that down. Did I not have concern, Jonah? But a great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also the animals. And that's where this brilliant prophetic word ends. It ends with a question that leaves the whole story in our laps. It asks us to deal with the profound nature of grace. What about you? What about you? Actually, it goes one further. Jonah's story asks us to deal with what it means to love our enemies. The people who don't think like us. That's the deep end of grace. Remember, though, grace is not a doormat. Grace is not a substitute for holiness. It's not cheap grace we're talking about here. We're talking about the strength of God's grace. It's that ability to see the world, to see people through the eyes of a God whose pure love is perfectly patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate, whose pure love always leads him toward redemption. In other words, people are not the problem. People are the prize. Sometimes things are not what they seem, and it's a good thing. Because the grace of God, the grace of God over me is connected. Listen. The grace of God over me is connected to the grace of God over you. And that means my choice to prepare, to prefer my prejudices over your redemption is a self-defeating choice. When I deny you grace, I deny it for myself. Look. Look, here's you, you're inside of Jesus, but here's you, and here's you, and here's you, and all of us are in the same heart of God. So those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Last week, the New York Times ran a story about a photograph. I want you to remember, the story was about a photograph. It's not a photograph I can show you. It's far too graphic. The image is of half a dozen children laying on a floor, lined up with their heads, poking out from a sheet. It's covering all of them. The setting is pretty basic, and if if you're not looking too closely, you might think these are kids who have been laid down for a nap, maybe in a refugee camp. It looks sort of rustic. It's what it looks like if you're not looking too closely. But if you lean in 
and look closely, it turns horrible. Because these are, in fact, the bodies of children used as shields in the war between Israel and Hamas. Their deaths were the responsibility of Hamas, according to the New York Times article. The death toll in this war is heavily weighted toward children because of the tactic of Hamas to use human shields and to hide in hospitals and uh, mosques and schools. But as I said, this, this story wasn't about Hamas this, uh, or the war so much as it was about that picture, that horrible picture, and about the, the, the title of the story, the heading of the story was Why This Photograph is Worth Looking At. That picture is an image of an injustice you cannot unsee once you've seen it. It cannot be explained away. It begs the question, according to the writer of the article who quotes Susan Sontag, what set of arrangements, what assumptions must be overturned to answer for this tableau of death? In other words, what do I have to rethink in order to believe this picture? And as I was reading this article about this picture, I thought about Jonah walking through the city of Nineveh, seeing the children and the animals who were suffering because of their birth into an evil empire, people just doing their lives, trying to understand a culture that no sane adult brain can understand. And I think about the cognitive disconnect in Jonah, wanting to blast this place while he walks through streets that have children and animals and women, while God wants to save it. And it hit me. Maybe this is exactly why God didn't give up on Jonah being his guy for the job, because that's something I have wondered, you know? I mean... When Jonah ran in the opposite direction, why didn't God just find somebody else? Why go to all the trouble of tossing a guy into the mouth of a fish, letting him languish there for days, then shaking him off and making him walk through a city that would surely have been dangerous to him, more likely the end of his life than theirs? Why? I don't know. I can't know. My ways are not God's ways. But looking at that deeply disturbing picture of six children who had been needlessly killed, who you'd assume could just as easily have been taking a nap if you didn't know the context, but they weren't, looking at that picture that I didn't have to look at, at because you know what? My life is not like that. I sensed that maybe there is this other thing that Jonah can help us understand. Maybe God wanted Jonah to walk through Nineveh, not for Nineveh's sake only, but also for his. Because what kind of prophet am I if I insist on clinging to my own protected narratives without peering, without even bothering to peer into the complexities of someone else's suffering? Sometimes things are not what they seem, and it's not a good thing. It's the image of Emmett Till. Do you remember that name? The African-American man who was lynched by a mob in the 50s. His mother, his mother, requested that his body be displayed in an open casket. His beaten, bruised, broken body be displayed in an open casket so the world could see that, what, as, as she said, what they did to her baby. 
And that scene became a picture that, as one journalist wrote, forced the world to reckon with the brutality of American racism. That mama, she made the world look. And that image changed the face of the civil rights movement, movement because once I've seen something that is completely out of step, out of character, with, with the, the, out of step with the character of God, I cannot unsee it. I have to deal with it. And I may not deal with it well. Like Jonah, I may find myself at the end of a spiritual or emotional journey unable to get past my own self so I can absorb the grace. I like to think I would respond well, but I don't know. I do know me, and, and I, don't, I doubt I'm more holy than this Old Testament prophet. Maybe God held on to Jonah, held on to him held hope for Jonah because God is not a pragmatist because God can save 120,000 people at the same time he's saving one because God wanted to save people who don't know their right hand from their left and he wanted to save this one guy, he wanted to give Jonah compassion for them and for people like them. Look, Jonah, these are people. They're children and women and animals too, a great city. And most of them don't even know what they don't know about their lives. So stay humble, Jonah, because they are people just like you. Stay compassionate. Stay soft toward the world. Don't let your arrogance lead you into assumptions that have nothing to do with God's truth. Don't let your arrogance lead you into assumptions that have nothing to do with God's truth. Because Jonah, what if you're wrong? Not about holiness, but what if you're wrong about grace? Which, in the Jewish holy day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, after they read the story of Jonah, they blow the shofar. That's the horn. And, and it's significant on this day is its use in warfare. The, they use it to announce a charge in war. But it's, it's not an angry charge. It's, it's more like a... It's more like a um, like a joyful battle cry. <laughs> the Hebrew word is terawah. And so Jews think actually of this sound as a weapon in the spiritual realm. They, they blow it to confuse the enemy. It's a whole lot like that cry of Jesus at his death. Do you remember when the, Jesus made that last cry on the cross? Right as he cried and he gave up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two and grace poured out. That's what happened. The, 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 the thick curtain between the holy of holies and the whole world was torn in two and grace poured out. So that the cross which seems like death, could become life to us. And so the cross isn't what it seems, 
And that's a good thing. Such a good thing. Friends, there is nothing this world needs more than grace. Nothing. And so I'm going to ask you to come. As you step into your holiday, as your patience gets thin, as you step into an election season that is, you know, coming, as you examine in your own heart the feelings and opinions and the prejudices you hold that you're not willing to let go of, not because they're necessarily wrong, but because you are holding them above the grace of God. As you do all of that, my heart for you, my cry for you, my hope for you is that you will feel yourself inside the heart of the Father. Jesus in you, you in Jesus, Jesus in the Father, all of it swimming in grace. On the night Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks to his Father in heaven for it. And he gave it to his friends, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. But it's not what it seems, and that's a good thing. It's broken that you might have life and have it eternally. And after supper, he took the cup, and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to his friends and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink from this cup, remember me. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, your broken body, your poured out blood, Jesus, we give ourselves humbly gratefully to you. And we rest in the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, but Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We ask you, God, to pour out your Holy Spirit over us. And pour out your Holy Spirit over these gifts and make them be for us the very body and blood of Christ. Make our hearts right to receive these gifts, God, so that as you are in us, we are in you, and we are in the Father. I ask you right now, I ask you right now to take a moment. What is it you've married? What idols have you taken on? What needs to be confessed? We've read the book of Jonah we hear the cry of Jesus on the cross. What are you doing battle with? What do you need to repent of?
And if you found in yourself a wholehearted repentance, then in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Lord, pour out grace. Pour out grace. Cause us, God, to be one with your purposes, one in union with the whole world who is calling Christ Jesus the Lord and one with each other. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm going to ask the servers to come now. And uh, if you are, if you are at peace with God and in love with, nope, I say it backwards every time. If you are at peace with your neighbor and in love with God, <laughs> then you are welcome to the table of the Lord. Uh, we have two stations, and you are welcome to come uh, to whichever station um, is closest to you. There'll be a station here and a station here. I'm going to ask you guys to step a little bit closer toward the chairs so that there's room here at the altar for everyone who is ready to come, uh, to come and kneel and let God deal with you. When you return to your chair, I just ask that you would remain uh, in, um, if y'all would just step, just step that way, just a little bit. There you go, that way. There you go. There you go. And uh, yeah, so that people can get to the altar. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Just want to make sure the altar is open for all of you. Um, come and kneel. Let the Lord deal with you. And when we return to your chair, would you stay in an attitude of worship? Stand and continue to worship with the Lord. You're invited to come. Will you stand? Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.